1: Welcome to the show. On last week's episode, we talked about the growing importance of the Global South. I want to build on that this week. Part of the reason the countries of the so-called Global South are becoming more powerful is that many of their economies are growing rapidly, such as India, Indonesia, or Saudi Arabia. But there's also another set of factors. These countries recognize that America's relative power is declining. They see that the era of American primacy as the world's only superpower is either already over or getting there. China is not ready to take on that mantle. So we're in this new, messy era where no one nation has the power to back the global system. And that means multilateralism itself is facing a challenge it hasn't faced in decades. All of this sounds really wonky, I know, so let me put it more simply who runs the world? If it's not one country, then is it an organization? Well, the UN is gridlocked. We all know that. It can't agree on big issues such as dealing with the wars in Ukraine or Gaza. The IMF and the World Bank, well, they're seen as Western institutions dealing mostly with problems in the global South, and it's not working out. So the question then is, is multilateralism broken? I put that question to Borga Brenda, the president of the World Economic Forum and a former foreign minister of Norway. I usually run into Borga either at Davos in Switzerland, where the World Economic Forum's annual meeting is held, or in New York. This time, we met up in Doha in Qatar, on the sidelines of the Doha Forum, where questions about the world order were hot topics of discussion. Global Reboot is a partnership between foreign policy and the Doha Forum. This is Episode 8 of Season 3, our final episode this year. Let's dive in. Bargha Brende, thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you so much for inviting me.
1: So everyone says multilateralism is broken. Is it?
0: It's not in its finest moment, that's for sure. Uh, intergovernmental processes are very difficult. We see that now during COP28. We also know that um, at the heart of multilateralism, intergovernmental processes is the Security Council at the UN, and the mood there is quite toxic. Mm. Even during the Cold War, there was areas where they could agree on resolutions. Uh, Today, it is a lot tougher. The challenge, though, with multilateralism being under so much pressure is that uh, more and more of the great challenges of our time do travel without passport. Mm. Climate change, uh, pandemics, cyber attacks. Also, AI has a huge impact on all of us. And if we're going to set standards and going to make sure that uh, we work in the interests of humankind, we need to deal with those challenges Mm. at the right level. Mm. That's the global level. Uh, The only way to, for example, put out rules for artificial intelligence is that we agree on some common traffic rules. Hmm. And we're not close to that. But what's changed here? Because
1: was there a time 20, 30 years ago when multilateralism was working better than it is now? And if that's the case, what's changed?
0: I think it was, of course, easier just uh, the decade after the Cold War. Then you were more in a unipolar world. You had the U.S. as kind of a sole uh, superpower. It's still a superpower, the U.S., but maybe a superpower without superpowers. (laughs) Uh, That's what we're seeing. But that period was a period where we had the Rio Summit in 1992, where we got the first new agreements on... uh, climate change, biodiversity, countries came together. We saw a World Trade Organization being created. We saw doubling of global trade, mm-hmm. uh, tariffs being uh, reduced, like a win-win approach mm. uh, to things. Uh, China joined the WTO in 2001 here in Doha. That's right. Uh, so that was incredible moments for a win-win thinking. So. No, I think we moved, if you use the trade context, I think we moved uh, into like a beggar the neighbor approach instead of prosper-your-neighbor approach. And uh, I think the challenge is that we will, for example, have no real economic recovery now without recovery also in collaboration, in trade, and in investments. Mm. And uh, it doesn't look likely very soon. That's right. You use the phrase
1: win-win, but another phrase often gets deployed a lot these days, and that's winners and losers. And globalization, for example, created winners and losers. Uh, There were winners and losers from the pandemic in terms of countries that got vaccines quickly and other countries that struggle to get them as quickly. There are winners and losers in the world of multilateralism in terms of whose voice gets heard at places like the UN, for example. Some of this, as you've pointed out, has to do with the relative change in power of the United States as former sole superpower to now just a superpower. But what else? What other things have led to this moment where there seems to be growing distrust in the global order, as it were, in the rules-based liberal international order in the multilateral system?
0: So definitely we are between orders. We had one order, as you said. It was more of a liberal, rules-based world order. But we don't know what the new order will be. Hopefully not a jungle growing back. Mm. But also with a rules and also level playing fields and collaboration, but it will be a different cooperation than we have seen in the past. But when you are between orders, it also means that there is competition, there's unpredictability, and uh, we have seen that also past in the history. In Europe, we have tried multipolarity. We had multipolarity in the 19th century, Mm. but without uh, multilateralism. That's right. Without any rules. That's right. And we saw how that ended. Right. uh, Not very well. So, multipolarity is potentially a positive thing for the world moving forward, with the big caveat that we also need multilateralism on top of it, where we agree on some rules. Just imagine uh, like New York or Delhi without traffic rules. You know, it would be total chaos. So. I think also globalism has uh, had a rough time lately in the media and also in the global discourse. But we should not lose the baby with the bathwater in the context of what has happened during the 30 last year. Since 1990, we doubled the global GDP. The driving force for that was trade, increased four times. And in 1990, we had... of the global population live in extreme poverty, today it's 10%. So globalism, of course, creates challenges, but we cannot neglect or or deny uh, the positive yields from this. For example, on the extreme poverty is also even more striking, because in 1990 we had 5 billion people on our planet, today we are 7 8. And then moving from forty percent to ten percent. So this win-win thinking and using your comparative advantages and buying where it's cheapest also created a lot of growth and prosperity. We maybe went too far, but so we have to adjust it. Right. But but I don't think we should totally give maybe, yeah, a bottom globalism bottom uh, yeah. all. Um, it's, it's now being like blamed for everything that is not uh, good in the world, even if it has been a uh, driving force. For a lot of progress
1: yeah one of the things the pandemic did is it kind of instigated a real fear in supply chains so uh, as the story goes in early 2020 when america suddenly realized it needed a lot of masks and it realized that most of the masks were made by china It really changed the mood in the United States, where there was this rising fear of globalization, a rising fear of supply chains. And in many senses, American foreign policy since then has been transformed. There's a real appreciation for economics through national security, a foreign policy for the middle class, for example, as the Biden White House often says. And that sense of mistrust of globalization and of supply chains um, which has led to a movement towards near shoring french shoring ally shoring whatever you want to call it is something that many countries share in europe uh, india as well china in its own way um, this makes it much harder for smaller countries to compete because they can't avail of the same facilities that they did in a much more globalized world without protectionism but Let me ask you about America's role in all of this. Do you think America is to blame for some of this change and mood globally? Some of this is about protectionism. America is often accused of being protectionist. Some of it also more recently, and now I'm thinking about the wars in Gaza and Ukraine, is an accusation from much of the countries of the global south. Uh, that America has double standards or hypocrisy, and that too hurts a sense of multilateralism, and who really upholds the global
0: order? I think uh, some of the uh, nearshoring an and de risking makes sense for. Countries. I think if you get uh, most of the antibiotics in the world produced one place, or you have all the semiconductors almost produced uh, in one country, critical minerals uh, just one place, I think that's risky. Yeah, it, 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 it's not uh, common sense to do that. So to be more conscious about this and not only have value chains just in time, but also just in case important. But what we need to know is also if you go for too far there and start to friend or you have to define who who are your friends. That's right. And, and for America as the largest economy in the world, is Nigeria a friend? Is South Africa a friend? No. India is definitely uh, defined as a friend now. It's, it's there's
1: the question of uh, do you define friends by interests or values? Yeah. So uh,
0: that's also uh, a very good comment. Let me come back to that because that is when it gets really, really complicated. But what we need to be aware of is that the inflationary pressure that we have seen, the highest inflation now in decades, part of that is also related to the fact that the value chains um, are being rethought. And then the input factors, the things that we import, gets more expensive because you're not buying it necessarily where it's cheapest anymore, but where you think uh, it mm. can also de-risk. Yeah. So this is putting pressure on the prices. And in addition, we're going through an energy transition that we haven't seen in 200 years. We built the whole industrial revolution on uh, carbon. No, we want to build a prosperous future without carbon, decarbonization. Something that makes sense, but it will of course uh, take a bit of time. But um, generally the price of inaction no far exceeds the price of action. But it will drive up the price of energy and electricity in the Mm -hmm. years to come. So those two factors will push inflation uh, up, so we will not go anytime soon back in the situation where we will have low inflation. Hopefully, mm. in a couple of years, we can meet the inflationary target, so interest rates can go down. So, then the role of America. Uh, and I can understand that you put that on the table. The American economics are good. Uh, America is came through uh, COVID and got a recovery that is uh, stronger than uh, most of the other big economies. This year, we're seeing $8 trillion uh, added to the global economy from $100 trillion to 108, And 45% of that growth comes from one single country, mm. being the United States of America. So it's doing well economically. The political situation in the U.S. is extremely polarized and extremely unpredictable. But um, America is still a big force. of the global economy, 5% of the global population, and close to 50% of the global military force. So what happens in America means a lot to the rest of the world. Then it is your question about uh, the standing of the U.S. U.S. has been through a lot of turbulence. They had the Trump uh, presidency, a big discussion about the election result. Uh, Biden administration that had um, also a tough start with the Afghanistan uh, pullout, but has now also launched this new concept of uh, modern supply-side economics. And it seems like it's working pretty well, but he doesn't get a lot of credit for it, neither in the U.S. or abroad. And the latest, of course, geopolitical uh, situation Um, with uh, U.S. being isolated in the Security Council is also a big uh, challenge for the U.S. uh, in the way a lot of countries look at them. But, you know, U.S. is a democracy. A lot of the countries criticizing U.S. now are non-democracies. That's right. And they have uh, different standards. So there is a lot to think about in that context, too. So as we think about
1: fixing multilateralism or improving it or rebooting it. What are the things you think the world needs to keep in mind? And I guess crucially and related to our previous parts of this discussion, what role will America play in such a revitalization of multilateralism?
0: First, I think we need to see the election uh, in the U.S. next year. Uh, I think the Biden administration are uh, in principle, believers in multilateralism and uh, also the UN. But of course, if you're a superpower, you decide a lot, so you don't want to delegate too much to the multilateral channels. Either. True, there's always been a dilemma, even for democratic administrations in the US. True. Uh, a second uh, Trump presidency. I think, uh, will put uh, less emphasis uh, on the UN and multilateralism. We saw that also in the first Trump presidency. That's more unilateralism and America first uh, policies. So uh, I think that's going to be very interesting
1: to follow. So given how unpredictable 2024 is going to be on that front, let's park the America question aside for a minute. Imagine you have an America that does want to engage with the world. How then do you go about boosting multilateralism and reversing some of the trends we've been discussing for the last 20 minutes? So
0: I think that there will be maybe more of an ad hoc approach to multilateralism and intergovernmental processes, but also maybe more coalition building in the future. So we have seen for example on the trade side that plurilateral deals are now quite in demand. There will like be then 80 countries coming together that wants to create framework for e-commerce mm. or 100 countries coming together, and even if you cannot get the agreement through the World Trade Organization, they can use the WTO framework to agree on a plurilateral agreement, for example, uh, then on services uh, or digital trade. I can see this also in other areas uh, moving forward on climate, also, for example, on uh, AI regulations. EU came out now uh, with a very interesting framework. For AI. And um, they could put it out uh, on the market and say, who wants to join this? And then you can have coalitions being built there. I-, I just think that it's harder to see the big countries of the world, the G7, the BRICS, and et cetera, being as willing as in the past to negotiate for months and then one single country then can stop the whole process. I think that's uh, uh, not going to be the case. Then you have the legitimacy also of um, the Bretton Woods institutions, where they were created uh, for different challenges. This is the World Bank, the IMF and others. Yeah, and uh, and the WTO. And then uh, they were built at a different time with different challenges and their representation there is still tilted towards or the West, that's why you have the BRICS Bank, uh, the Belt and Road Bank, and etc. appearing. Mm.
1: You wrote a, an essay recently in which you used uh, the word coopetition, which is uh, a portmanteau of cooperation and competition. And this is actually a, a word that's, I think, emerged out of game theory and the business world about how companies can compete and cooperate at the same time. And you used it to describe geopolitics today and the importance of countries doing the same. How do you think that works out? And is that happening more than people realize? Because I think people tend to see big divisions at places like the United Nations, but what they often don't see is the kind of cooperation you've been describing uh, and that you do uh, through the World Economic Forum or at Doha Forum, where we're sitting right now,
0: it's, um, it's true—a uh, more kind of uh, maybe. Um Uh, media-friendly way of saying it is uh, uh, we we have a lot of frenemies out there. (laughs) Uh, So I think between the US and China being 45% of the global economy, it means a lot when President Biden and President Xi Jinping can meet. Even if they don't uh, see eye to eye on all these uh, issues, they can have long discussions dealing with things ad hoc Can they, for example, agree on some guidelines on AI? What can they agree on uh, on climate change? Can we triple, for example, the amount of renewables by 2030? Can we have a total ban on methane uh, by 2030? Uh, And then you can go on and on. And it ended also in agreeing on having a hotline. So if there is a misunderstanding uh, approaching on the military side, before they didn't even know who to call. And now they can pick up like this uh, red phone that we used to have uh, between Kremlin and uh, Washington D.C. during the Cold War. So this I think realistically is the way moving forward. And you will see more regional trade agreements too. And you will see trade agreements between uh, countries and alliances that feel that they have much more in common. And you will see also checks and balances uh, being developed and you will see um, a little bit like the Cold War that uh, big nations try to court smaller nations mm. to get them on their side. Mm. And we're seeing that now with so-called middle countries or yeah. swing states, as they're known. Yeah. And uh, we saw that now with the elections in the Maldives, right, where uh, there was a lot at stake. And uh, one party was seen as more pro-India and another one more uh, pro china i think is more complex than that but uh, election results ended uh, with also Mm -hmm. uh, india being asked uh, to have their marine navy uh, leave the islands even if of course india would say it's it's rescue vessels but uh, they're not inviting china though They're, they're saying that we don't want on our territory any of the big nations being represented but this is just the tip of the iceberg look at asia Myanmar is where India and China meets. Bangladesh, Nepal is also where India and China meets. So it's not only the U.S. and uh, China. Uh, There is also other countries. And unfortunately, we are also seeing more proxy situations where it's Mm. not in the interest um, of the countries and the civilians. In Africa, I'm very worried, uh, being the new kind of theater Mm. For proxy wars, I would say Sudan, partly Ethiopia, partly Somalia. Mm. uh, And I can mention also other countries uh, in West Africa and the Francophone Africa that is not looking good. Mm. So there is not conflicts among the big powers directly. Mm. That's one tries to avoid. But you can use your proxies. So, I guess
1: this brings us back to multilateralism, right? Because, what is the role of a big multilateral organization like the UN in a big global conflict? Because, you know, ultimately, if you have a pandemic or a giant asteroid hits the earth, you need something that goes much beyond two strong countries or bilateral or regional solutions. And you've described some of this through sectoral issues that the world can come together and agree on. But in terms of bigger issues that arise, such as another pandemic, what do you think is the best way for the world to get together? And, and is it still the UN?
0: We can uh, see all the um, faults with the, with the UN, but it's the best alternative we have. It's all the countries of the world, even in such a uh, quite toxic global uh, geopolitical situation. The ambassadors do meet, Mm -hmm. uh, and also ministers in the UN context. Uh, They might uh, use strong language uh, against each other. Sometimes they even shout, but not as frequently as during the Cold War. That's right. Uh, But... That is also reflecting the reality. So when when you see this being displayed in the the Security Council, it is really where we are. But it's good that we have those institutions. And those institutions are also ready, as you say, if there is another new, more serious pandemic on the horizon. That's, for example, uh, where you could see Uh, children are being more affected as we have seen uh, in the past Uh, then there's no other way than using those institutions and maybe they will shout less and then collaborate out of necessity Uh, I wish that was also the case for climate change it is uh, a bit crazy that we are seeing now huge cost of climate change but still There's used more money on subsidizing Mm. fossil fuel, including coal in the world, using taxpayers' money to make it cheaper than it's used on subsidizing the introduction of renewables. So you can say that the glass is, I, I don't want to be too pessimistic either, because the glass is half empty or half full. I would say it's half full because also if we met 10 years ago and I said that the price of solar would fall to one tenth probably say you guys uh, you, you're really a uh, person but today wind and solar is competitive uh, with all other energy sources without any kind of subsidies and are the cheapest ones but it's not moving fast enough
1: you know when someone says something optimistic i always find that it's a good moment to end an interview so Barga brenda thank you so much for joining me you
0: no know, thank you so much for inviting me i
1: enjoyed our discussion me too And that was Borga Brenda, the president of the World Economic Forum, and also the former foreign minister of Norway. Global Reboot is a partnership between foreign policy and the Doha Forum. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin and Ola Tunji Osho Williams. That is it for season three of Global Reboot. It's been a pleasure. I'm Ravi Agrawal. Thanks for listening.